From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I'm your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We'll provide you with about actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. As a reminder, FPNA today now has CPE credit for episodes. If you want to get credit for an episode, download the Earmark app and you can search FPNA today and apply for CPA credit for courses you've listened to. Also, if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, please take the time to give us a rating on Spotify or Apple or whatever podcast platform you listen to. And with that, I want to welcome today's guest on the show. Today, I have with me Chris Riley. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. I really appreciate it. Yeah, really excited to have you. So let me just give a little bit about Chris's background, and then I'll give him an opportunity to to go into a little more depth. So Chris currently resides in the Denver metro area. He graduated from Villanova School of Business. He has worked in finance with companies such as FTI Consulting, Hilton, and some middle market private equity firms. He specializes in financial modeling and FP&A. So Chris, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up where you're at today? Yeah, sure. So again, thanks so much for having me on. Um, you know, like you alluded to there, I started my career in New York City for FTI Consulting and did a lot of consulting during the financial crisis, and then transitioned from that to to Hilton Worldwide, the big hotel company, in a more traditional FP&A Treasury type role. And then after that, I was I really struck an interest in private equity, and so I pursued uh, middle market PE. Out here in Denver, my wife and I wanted to relocate at the time. And so I spent uh, about six, seven, eight years middle market private equity. And then just a few years ago, I decided to go out on my own as like an M&A, FP&A contractor. And I also like to do uh, financial modeling education. Got it. Great. So can you talk a little bit, you just mentioned FTI being there during the financial crisis doing consulting. What was that like? I mean, what were maybe some of the takeaways and the learnings from that? Yeah, it was actually really fascinating. So I started out right um, in the Lehman bankruptcy, right when I started my first week. And so I was in Rockefeller Center working on that, helping them unwind some of the derivative portfolios. And um, it was just, it was kind of a shocking way to enter the working world to see a lot of people that were really upset, a lot of people being let go, empty offices, empty boxes and that kind of thing. And there, there we were just trying to help pick up some of the pieces and provide some enterprise value to to Lehman as they unwound this derivatives portfolio. So it was just a very kind of interesting and sobering way to start my 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 working career. And I never really forgot it because it was just so so unique. I bet I was in grad school when Lehman and all that happened in 08 and we did an investment portfolio and we were doing our presentation to the board and I remember they said this is one of the best presentations you know we've ever had, and I'm sure you guys learned some really good lessons. But we don't want to go through this again because it was mm-hmm. a really bad year for the portfolio. As you yeah. can imagine. I don't <laughs> remember what the exact numbers were, but it was probably twenty something percent. It was a little better than the market, but it wasn't by any means good. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so I I could relate a little bit to that, and then you know going to work in late 2008 with all that going on. I went to work for American Express, being a bank. That was a definitely a difficult time to come into the company. Yeah, I can imagine. The whole experience was a very interesting and unique time. 
That makes a lot of sense. So I know you mentioned you've been running your own business for the last couple of years. You know, currently you're running your own business. So maybe can you talk a little bit about what led to you deciding to go out onto your own and what your area of emphasis is for your firm? Yeah. So good question. I mean, for me, it had always kind of been a, you know, a pipe dream a little bit. I'd be driving down in, tr- in traffic and, you know, just going to my cubicle and just thinking sort of philosophically to myself, wow, you know, wouldn't it be great if I could just do my own thing? And, you know, a little bit daydreaming at the time, not really realizing how much work goes into it. But it's it laid the foundation for me wanting to eventually do my own thing at some point, regardless of where my initial career took me. And so, after I spent a bunch of years in private equity, um, I really honed my financial modeling skills and I really honed my business skills. When I was younger in my career, I was decent at the modeling piece, but I didn't quite understand the big picture. Uh, private equity like really sort of illuminated my understanding of how business works, how transaction works. And once I felt like I got to that point, I had enough skills, a decent enough network, I decided, well, let me kind of go ahead and pursue this dream I always wanted to go out on my own and see if I can do the parts of private equity and and FP&A that I love the most, which is analyzing transactions and building the models and hopefully I have enough of a network to kind of stand me up to get going. And so I just sort of went for it two years ago and I'm I'm still here, I guess. So, so, (laughs) so far, so good. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's a big part of it is still being there, right? Just keeping it going. So no, that's exciting. And that's great that it's worked out for you so far. And I'm sure it will continue to work out. You're Smart guy, you'll figure that out. But you mentioned <laughs> the uh, the private equity taught you a lot about kind of how a business works, a lot of that type experience. So, and a lot about transactions and things. So, how was that different than maybe like corporate finance? Like, what were the key takeaways from private equity? So, I think in corporate finance, I was part of primarily in Hilton, where I did a lot of corp fin. And the company was almost so large that I had trouble zooming out and understanding the big picture. Now, thankfully, Hilton does have a lot of hotel assets, and you can drive by those, and you sort of understand, okay, I see this building, and I kind of understand how it generates revenue. But when you roll it all up and all the different business models they have, it's, it's a little bit hard to understand the big picture. And when I got into middle market PE, we're, we're buying much smaller companies, relatively speaking, to, to something gigantic like Hilton. And so right away, you're meeting the management team at the very top of the business, which was completely new for me. And they talk through their whole strategy. They talk through their entire P&L. And then in the, in the private equity in the office, we talk about how we're going to acquire this company and, and change it. And just by going through that conversation, all of a sudden, all the lights switch on, at least for me where I finally understood, okay, I get it. There's this enterprise that this team has built. They could use some help from our office, our, our team, and together we're going we're gonna to acquire it and grow it. And so it wasn't overnight. You know, It took me about a year to really understand all the pieces and the nuance, but going through that helped me understand the big picture of how it all came together. And then suddenly I felt like things that I was reading in the Wall Street Journal, it, it, all, it all started to make sense. And I, and I felt like I could carry a conversation. I just sort of knew what was going on. And I was able to talk at a more strategic level than purely an analytical one where I didn't quite have the big picture experience. So just, it really clicked just going through middle market transactions in PE. That that makes a lot of sense. I could see where being able to see that whole transaction, meeting with the management, discussing things strategically helps put together the analytical work and stuff you've done before to have kind of that holistic view of the company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And, you know, I know you, you talk about FP&A and financial modeling a fair amount on LinkedIn. Can you kind of walk through how you learned FP&A? I believe that was mostly in your private equity, because I know you have a little bit of a non-traditional background, you know, not the traditional corporate finance where you're in an FP&A department. Yeah, no, it's a good question, right? How are they all intermingled in a way? So I did, I did get some good, what I'll call classic FP&A exposure at Hilton. So I had some experience there, but where I felt like where, like, where I really weren't learned it again was in private equity, because as soon as we were going to buy this company, well, then our job is to create a, you know, a pro forma financial model over the next five years, uh, build the three statements and that kind of thing. And it's very common to encounter the finance person at the target company who may not have the experience for that or the skill set. They might be a, just you know more of a, a bookkeeper or maybe a controller, and they're not used to that forward-looking finance function. And so, when the managing partner just says, "Hey, you know, build a model and figure it out," well, then you've got to figure it out. And so, my a lot of my FP&A experience was self-taught in how do I build this income statement, how do I build this balance sheet, and link it all together to see how the company is going to perform over the next five years and how is that going to impact our return on investment. So it was just a lot of conversations with the management team, a lot of conversations with the finance team, so many iterations, you know, sleepless nights until again, it all finally sort of clicked. And I just, you know, I just sort of learned by doing it because I had to get it done. That can often be the best teacher when you have something due to the next morning and you know, you have to figure it out no matter how frustrating it might be. Yeah, yeah, no, sink or swim is, um, it's challenging and stressful in the moment. But every time I've been put in that situation, I look back and I th- think just, you know, wow, I really learned a lot, a lot doing that, even though it was tough at the time. Yeah, even though sometimes you're like, I may not want to do that again, but I definitely learned a lot. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so it sounds like, yeah, the, the FP&A experience is really around a lot of it is these models and building, building out and understanding the companies where you kind of got your hands dirty, so to speak, in private equity. Is that, am I hearing that right? Is that kind of where the, a lot of that experience came is really the process of meeting with management and building out those financials to figure out if these deals made sense? Yeah, exactly. Like, I'll just give you an example. You know, we, we looked at a, a company in the oil and gas space a long time ago and to forecast how that company was going to do, you couldn't really make up these vanilla assumptions like growing revenue by X and expenses by Y and just seeing how it all flows through. We had to talk about, barrels of production and pipeline and where the business was going to expand and different growth avenues. And so you really just had to get in the room with the management team and become their FP&A team to help structure this model. And so that w- that kind of process would rinse and repeat for every company we looked at. You know, we'd look at something in, in the grocery space and you learn groceries. You look at agriculture, you learn ag. So after a while, you get enough reps and it starts to make more sense. But it's really, you're in the room with the team, having them walk you through their business, and then you build a model around that. And that's where that FP&A skill set comes from. That makes a lot of sense. I can see the the value in that. And you quickly start to see the similarities and differences between industries. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Because I imagine you probably looked at transactions from a, a quite a few different industries, it sounds like. It wasn't a PE firm that specialized in just one industry then. No, that's right. So it was it was multiple industries, but they, they'd be looking for businesses that had common characteristics, and that would span a few different segments. Sure. Yeah. Th- I mean, that's pretty typical, right? Most PE have at least an area they target. I know, you know, last two companies I worked for, you know, they were PE firms that were in the technology space, mm-hmm. right? Software. One was big in SaaS, another was big in cybersecurity and things like that. We will be right back. 
you know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. And now let's get back to our episode. Switching gears a little bit, you know, I know you speak a lot on LinkedIn about financial modeling. I know yeah, I've heard really good things about your modeling. I've seen some of your the work you've done, and I know you do a really good job there. When you're building a model, what's the process you go through? How do you think about that when you first you know, are sitting down to build a model? Yeah, so the first thing that I like to think about is who's the end user and why are we building this tool? Because often the end user is somebody who doesn't have the Excel or modeling skills that I have. And so I run the risk of overcomplicating something just by the nature of the design, which it sounds like you can you empathize with. I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've done it, done it multiple times. So I, th- so I think, okay, who's the end user? And then I try to backfill from there with my starting point being we do need some kind of data source from somewhere. So let's figure out the data source. Let's figure out the end user. And then it's my job to make the middle of the model as efficient and as streamlined and basically scalable as possible. And so that's where I'll do my thinking and I'll kind of map it out once I have the data and I know the end user. So I kind of start with the bookends and then I fill in fill in the middle pieces. And if I'm hearing that, the bookends, are, there's two things. There's the raw data, figuring out the data source, what all you need, what's available, how to manage that. And then there's the, the front end, which is really thinking of what is what am I trying to solve? What are the answers they need to get out of this model? And you know, who is it for? Yep, exactly. And then from there, you kind of fill in going, okay, well, then I'm going to need a three statement based on what they want. I need these schedules. And you start putting the blocks together. Yeah, exactly. Because at the end of the day, you want the model to just be a tool to drive conversation to hopefully make some good decisions. And so I'm thinking okay, how can somebody receive this file, open it up, hit print, and they can go into a meeting and actually have a talk and, and get somewhere. And so it's my job as the modeler to build modules in the middle to make that an efficient process. But the model itself doesn't is not the business. It's not the thesis. It's getting it into the right hands for a real conversation, so for stuff, for stuff to take place. And I like how you said the real conversation. The model itself is not the answer. The model helps enable and guide conversations, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. and it's only as good as the assumptions 
and how correctly it's been built in the sense of, are the formulas all right? Is there no errors? Do the assumptions make sense? Because we know the assumptions aren't going to be right, because if we could forecast that well, you and I would be retired at the moment, right? <laughs> right. <We wouldn't, laughs> that's what I always tell people, like, well, you forecasted that really close. I'm like, yeah, no, that wasn't my forecasting skills. I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> Right. That was, I just did, I just made a decent guess. <laughs> that was an estimate that worked out. Wait till you see the next one. Just remember the last one was close. So you can't get <laughs> right. too mad at the next one. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm sure you've seen just about everything in, in modeling. So maybe before we talk a little bit of some guidance for people, do you have a modeling horror story? Maybe a model you inherited or something you've seen where you just kind of, you still kind of cringe when you think about it. Oh, yeah. Uh, man, I will never forget this one. So this was in, in the PE world, more of a VC kind of deal. And fortunately, the company had hired a consultant to build the model, which doesn't make consulting look all that good. But, you know, because everybody's a little bit different. There was a, <laughs> um, a model that had, this is not an exaggeration, six to 7,000 rows on multiple tabs. And so it made my computer like freak out, made the fan go on, everything heated up. And anytime you would change any cell, the whole thing would like freeze, it would bug, you know, the, the wheel would spin, all this kind of stuff. And we got nowhere, you know, absolutely useless. And so the, the whole thing basically was unusable and the management team was frustrated. And so what ended up happening was I ended up re rebuilding the whole thing. And it's sort of a good lesson there because it, it took out all of this fluff. You know, I think the model was genuine in its intent that it was trying to forecast some population growth for a, it was a it was a healthcare deal but at the end of the day it was just too complicated you know and you can't you can't predict that kind of stuff when at the end of the day the idea is just let's get a general financial picture to assess if we can complete a transaction so i've just i remember i was so angry i was like showing my colleagues i'm like can i just show you this and just kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling like this is the worst model i have ever seen <laughs> Yeah, that is pretty bad. I remember you mentioning something, I think, about that model on LinkedIn one time. It was row 6,000 for an assumption, and I just shook my head when I saw it. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a bad one. Yeah, no, we, we all have those uh, horror stories. Yeah, to help prevent those horror stories, kind of you know, speaking on the opposite end of that, what do you believe are the, you know, the most important or maybe the top three skills that somebody needs to be a successful modeler. So I think, you know, at the at the basic level, you just sort of need your technical Excel skills. You don't you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be amazing. You just have to kind of know the 80-20 of the stuff you're going to use most often, which is fairly basic formulas. It's not it's not too crazy. And just have some of those keyboard shortcuts dialed so you can at least be efficient. You know, th that that's sort of the Excel level of it. The, the rest is truly business sense. And it's, it's big picture knowing the financial statements. You know, at the end of the day, you got to, yes, we can forecast revenue in, in Excel, but why? And then we can build expenses, but why? And how are they built? And then just because we have net income, that doesn't mean that that's equal to cash. So how do we forecast working capital? How do we factor in capital expenditures? And so when, if you start to understand those primary levers of what drive a business and then couple that with some modeling skills, just, just frankly, intermediate modeling skills, I think then you can be really effective in FP&A because you want to be able to have that conversation at the management level. You want to be able to come in and say, I've done some analysis and here's a recommendation. 
not like I have a fancy model and can somebody else interpret it, but I don't really know what's going on. <laughs> you know, like please somebody else read this and tell me if it's good or not. Right. It might be it might be a great file, but that's not helpful. If you can take the work that you've done and you've you say, here, here's what I've completed, and now I propose we do X, Y, and Z. What does everybody think? You have you now have a much more effective tool at your disposal. And that kind of thinking comes from understanding the, the primary levers of the business. So if I'm hearing it right, you know, you mentioned three things. You know, there's the base technical skills that you need to have. And I'm guessing when you say technical, you mentioned, you know, you don't need to be an expert in Excel or spreadsheets, whatever you're using, but probably knowing if, some if, some basic lookups, and a few other formulas. Yeah. There's probably 10 that you use 80% of the time, right? I'm I'm guessing. I know that's the case with me. There's, you know. There's always the occasional where you might have to find something out of the ordinary, but most of the time it's pretty simple for me. Yeah, definitely. And then really understanding the financial statements, understanding how they work, networking capital, what's on the balance sheet, how it balances, how to build a cash flow, really understanding how they interrelate to each other. Is that? Yeah, yeah. And I and I talk about this, you know, all the time, which I'm sure is a broken record for, you know, a lot of people, <laughs> maybe especially for you, right? But the understanding of those statements is so important because that allows you to be strategic about the business. You know, at the end of the day, we can overcomplicate FP&A as much as we want, but any business is going to generate revenue, it's going to have some offsetting expense, and then the team has to manage the cash. And either they can do that or they or they can't. And so you want to be sort of thinking and targeting that level. You know, how do we grow it? How do we strategize to keep this business going over the long over the long term and getting out of such like such hyper technical that we're not necessarily getting getting value out of it? I love the part where you said, you know, just managing the cash, right? Making sure you have cash. And I kind of laughed because we had uh, we just released the episode with CJ Gustafson. He just became a CFO at a VC firm. And he was talking about Mark Lorre, who was the CFO at Jet.com. And we were talking about, you know, financial crisis. And he goes, give the ad- advice Mark Lorre one time said, he goes, you have a viable business till you don't. <laughs> like stating the obvious, right? <laughs> you have cash till you don't have cash, but you need to know how to manage it and know when you're going to run out. I know you've talked about that, of being able to see that number go negative and either having something in there to prevent it or a trigger to make sure that conversation happens that, oh yeah, we're going to need to figure out a funding source here, or we're going to need to slow growth or expenses or whatever it might be. You know, so you can right. have those intelligent conversations. And that's where the third thing I think comes in. And that's the, right, the business acumen, strategy, the critical thinking, whatever you want to call it. But it's that side where you really have to be able to see the big picture and talk intelligently and be able to sense check assumptions. And I think we've all worked in those situations where you get a model and you're looking at the assumptions and going, okay, nobody even checked them. This is a beautiful model, but <laughs> these numbers, they're never going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, exa- exactly. That's, that's all part of it. And the, and the business acumen piece, you know, that comes with time. And unfortunately, I feel like it always comes later. And it would be nice if even I just sort of recommend that become a primary focus for somebody newer in the profession. You know, it's, it's just zooming out. It's big strategic levers. Why do these things happen? Because you can always backfill technical details if you have the strategy. You know, but for me, it was the opposite. I had the technicals first. I got the strategy stuff later. So you know, I think that's the natural progression for a lot. But if you could flip those, I think it'd be really valuable for somebody who's kind of looking for an FP&A career. Th- that is really solid advice. If you can get in the room at the beginning and really 
have some of those strategic discussions and listen to management and absorb that knowledge. That will help you because you're right. The technical skills, I mean, anyone who's in this field generally is good with numbers. You know, they're intelligent people. You know, finance, you're not going to go into finance if you hate numbers or if you did, you're going to be pretty miserable. So, (laughs) you know, I mean, and Excel isn't hard to learn. It's not rocket science to learn the basics of Excel, but really it's, there's a lot of time and wisdom that comes into understanding the strategy and to be able to think through things intelligently. I know one area I really struggled in my career was getting out of the weeds, getting, you know, getting that big picture detail. I still remember I had one director. He wasn't my direct boss, but I worked very closely with him. He was in the neighboring team. And every time we were on a call, would I get too detailed? He'd send me a slap. We had an agreement. He'd send me an instant message. It's like, <laughs> take it back up, take it back. And I focused on it that whole year. And I even had another general manager I supported. He thought I was too detailed. And he finally came to me and said, okay, I want every email to start with bluff. And this is really when it started to sink in. He goes, bluff, bottom line up front. Mm -hmm. You can put the details below it, but just get to the point. (laughs) You know, and so it took me a while. It it held me back a little bit in my career. And I feel like I really started to get there. But even sometimes I would start getting into detail. My boss or somebody would be looking at me. I'm like, okay, just stop. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I, I laugh because I've I've been there myself. I've been there myself. I'm glad I'm not the only one. So yeah, I get it. I mean, that's what makes a good analyst, right? Is getting into the details and really be able to work through those things. But what makes a great FP&A person is having the ability to pull back up. And that often takes time to develop. So if someone came to you tomorrow, and I think I know the answer from what we talked about it, but, but if they asked you for one piece of advice to become a better modeler, they wanted to become better at financial modeling, what would be the one piece you'd give them? So I would actually say they should build a model of their own lives. That is the way that I learned pretty much all my Excel stuff. I wanted to build a personal budget and you know now a family budget. And just tinkering with that is how I got good at the raw Excel skills. And the reason I say that is because there theoretically is no learning curve for your own life. You kind of know what's going on. You know when you're getting paid, you know when you have bills to pay. And so in a business, you got to learn all that stuff. But your own life, you just sort of intrinsically know it. And so it's much easier to model, tinker with functions and say, okay, you know, like, okay, I want this output and now I've got it. So I just, I built tons and tons of personal models over the years. And that led me to experimenting with Excel functions and just all these other cool things that I wouldn't have necessarily learned on the job. So I feel like that is definitely number one because it sharpens the technical skills right out of the gate. And then it prepares you for that phase two stuff, you know, where you can start the more strategic thinking because the technical skills are honed. So yeah, I'd say model out your own life if you can. So the advice basically, if I'm taking it, is everybody should basically do a budget, some kind of modeling, whether it's, hey, where I want to be in 10 years, retirement, whatever, but start modeling out those situations that apply to your own life. Take your revenue, take your expenses, look at your assets, your liabilities, all those things that make up basically the financial statements for your own life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, even just do do something the next 12 months, you know, keep it basic, paychecks, mm-hmm. expenses, and then... Um, you know, it gets interesting. If you use a credit card, you'll find that, okay, you have expenses one month, but you pay the cash later on. And all of a sudden now you're learning cash flow forecasting instead of just P&L building. And so there you can actually draw a lot of parallels from your personal life into the business setting. So just, you know, just do a couple months, see how it goes. And it, it becomes a great 
discipline for you too. So it's kind of a win-win. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure you learn some things as you're looking at go, wait, I'm spending how much on what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And and that. Yeah. And the realization of, oh man, going out too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, just the fact of you start to realize being better disciplined with your money, which is good for when you're looking at a business, right? Because FP&A, one of the things we have to be is disciplined around how that capital is allocated. Right, and it's true exactly. in our own lives. So I could see where there's a lot of benefits from that. So, you know, next question here, you know, I've heard you talk a lot about integrated three statement modeling. And I think, you know, and you and I have talked about this and I think most of the audience knows I haven't done a lot of three statement modeling. I've done a little bit. You know, most of my experience has been P&L, maybe some CapEx stuff and key metrics, you know, whether it's transactions or different things like that. So when I always hear everybody, hey, you got to always have a three statement, start with the integrated. You don't necessarily always see that when you're working in big companies. So could you talk a little bit about you know, what the benefits of having an integrated three statement model is, maybe why you, know, you uh, talk about that so much. You almost kind of preach the importance of that three statements. Yeah. So at the end of the day, the reason you're building that model is to ultimately forecast cash in the future. And it's not going to be as accurate as a 13-week cash flow, which can be done by, you know, by day or by week. But directionally, if you need to know what the cash might do over the next 12, 24 months, even five years, you need those three statements because the income statement is accrual-based. And even though accrual accounting is has its own beauty to it because it's simpler to follow when you understand it, you have to translate that into the cash. Because like we said earlier, you know, you either have the business or you don't. And so the three statement piece allows you to forecast the working capital, the capital expenditures, the debt payments, and even any equity contributions or distributions so that when you zoom out and look at the cash flow, you can see where's that ending balance going to be in the future. And now given that, do we need to potentially raise any more capital from debt or equity or could we maybe distribute, right? And so if you're looking at it at the private equity level, you're saying, okay, if we need more, we've got to talk to lenders. Or if we can distribute capital back, then we can make a return on our investment. So the integrated three statements allow you a holistic, complete picture of translating a, an accrual-based business to seeing the cash in the future. And that's that's why I, I harp on it so much, because at the end of the day, you need to have a sense of the cash. As they often say, cash is king, right? Yes. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and... We talk about, especially right now, I see all these uh, SaaS businesses, you see the economy turning a little bit, right? SaaS businesses in the early days, especially VC back, they're not making money. They're burning a lot of cash. And the last few years, money's been cheap. You know, risk has been relatively inexpensive in the sense of loans. There's not a much interest you're paying on those. And so they've invested in a lot of these companies and there's been, I think, a lot of inefficiency. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say a lot, but a fair amount, right? You're uh, you're not as worried about the unit economics. We can get to the next round of raising and we're growing great revenue. But it, I think you're seeing that uh, return to the basics today, the, the restatement, the cash. It's like, okay, how do we really manage? What are our unit economics? How do we make sure we can survive 18 months and that we're growing this in a healthy way, in a sustainable way versus revenue at all cost? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And especially you brought up SaaS, you know, there's this tendency, right? Revenue at all costs, which sort of sort of means headcount at all costs, and then let's see how much runway we have, and then you know maybe the next round triggers or money is cheap, and you know that is one way to do it when the time is right. But when it's not so right or even a little bit uncertain, some of that stuff does have to be scaled back. And and again, it all kind of comes back to basics, whether it's you know a SaaS company or an, an ice cream shop, right? It's you got revenue and expense. 
and it's all got to net out somewhere at the end of the day. And you can, you know, you can string it along with financing rounds for a while. You know, don't, don't get me wrong; it doesn't mean the company has no value, but at some point, it does have to equalize to be self-funding, or you're going to run run into issues. And so, again, it all comes back to those three statements. Why I harp on it so much is you can sort of predict that time if you run everything through those three statements. Yeah. And it's funny, as you mentioned, self-funded, it reminded me a line a little off the three statement, but I think you'll like this again. This was actually in this week's podcast that was just released, uh, CJ. And he mentioned, he goes, he was talking about CAC, right? Customer acquisition costs, which is huge in SaaS. He said, low, low CAC payback period, customers fund your growth. High CAC payback period, VCs fund your growth. And that last part is unsustainable. And I really like that way. I'd never quite thought of it that way. And that's where you talk about the runway and the headcount and managing revenue and your cash. Because if you're constantly raising and you're spending a lot to acquire customers, you're going to be in trouble. And having that view of the cash will help you realize that. Because sometimes just seeing the P&L and seeing the headcount doesn't dawn on you until you really see it laid out and start to realize we're spending how much and just a clear cash picture. I know there's times I've done that in my personal life where you put the budget together and you're like, (laughs) wait. I burned how much last month? <laughs> like I yeah. gotta slow, I gotta slow that burn rate, or I'm gonna be in trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've been there. <laughs> that's that's an interesting way of uh, of framing it. Never thought of that either. That's cool. Yeah, I really that really stuck with me. It just I thought it was a really good way to sum it up. You know, on that on that whole idea. So. All right. So moving forward here, I think that's been helpful on three statement. Maybe can you talk a little bit? I know you've developed a few different courses. So can you talk a little bit about the courses you have out there and what you hope people learn from your courses around financial modeling? And before you do that, I'm just going to share, I was talking to somebody who's had a model built by Chris and they commented that they were the best financial modeler that they had ever worked with. So I want the audience to know Chris is really good. He knows his stuff. He is a really good modeler. (laughs) I've seen some of his models and I know he does, does really good work. So from there, now that I set you up, Chris, I'll let you uh, talk a little <laughs> bit about your courses and a little bit of what you offer. Yeah, well, I appreciate that uh, that compliment. And it is uh, true. He did say yeah. he's a CFO of a, a large company, and that's what he said. Oh, well, that, well, that's awesome. Well, I'll, um, I'll just talk about the primary one because everything else sort of flows down from that. And basically, my, my flagship one that's the most popular is financial modeling for private equity. And the reason that I like it so much and that it performs so well is because you learn all the three statements, which we've talked about, but then on top of it, you learn how to layer in a buyout transaction into those three statements and then ultimately calculate a return on your investment. So it's it's really a pretty comprehensive business education taught through a financial model. And I built it up from scratch because... When I started in private equity, like I alluded to earlier, like I mean, I really, I really struggled. You know, I didn't quite know all the big picture stuff. It took me a long time to get there. You know, over a year, and as time went on, I got better at it. I started saying to myself, "I wish I could have coached myself or coach an analyst or something like that on how to do this the right way." Because of all the sleepless nights I spent doing it the wrong way, and so that was my goal. I wanted to do it from scratch. I wanted to make it as relatable as possible, but also as detailed as possible. So you really got the sense of how does a true middle market buyout work? And also how do we model out all these financial statements? So you get this this holistic education through this course. So I just, I built it um, in the in the COVID days and uh, it's done, it's done really well since. And um, 
it, let's see, it's, it's also on Wall Street Prep. So that was a nice validation for, you know, it's good enough for them to feature it. So that was nice. And it also was a precursor for FTI Consulting. I, I rebuilt their new hire training last year in, in a similar fashion. So it's a nice, a nice way for somebody at home to get that comprehensive education that they're, they're teaching at uh, some of the biggest management consulting firms uh, in the world. Oh, great. And I appreciate you sharing that. And I can relate to when you said you wanted others not to have to go through the pain you did. That's why one of the things I teach in almost all my Excel trainings I do is 10 design principles for designing Excel financial models. You know, how to think of color coding, how to link things, assumption pages so that it's structured. And I always like to say, hey, these are these are design principles, not commandments in the sense of you, help, you have to follow these 10. Mm-hmm. It's come up with what works for you. There are some that you really should follow. There's some that are almost like a rule, like don't hard code. Right. That's a pretty universal rule. Don't stick it all over your model. Others are a little more subjective. And I've found that that's something I wish I had been taught when I started. You know, my models were a mess the first few I built. Sometimes they still are if I'm not careful, if I get you know, carried away. So I appreciate that. I'm sure it's a good course for anyone who's, you know, interested in learning more there. So next question we have for you here is, you know, as you look at FPA, you look kind of toward the future and what's going on, what do you see as the biggest challenges? and opportunities in the field of FPA? So this might be sort of a strange answer, but in my mind, the challenge, and, and maybe also an opportunity depending on how you approach it, is the overcomplication and the inundation of sophisticated data and processes that we have at, like, at our disposal. There's, like, there's AI now, and there's machine learning, and there's all this automation. And as you've probably gathered from this conversation, like I, some of that stuff is just over my head. I like to kind of keep it as basic as possible. And these, you know, these primary levers of revenue and expense, you know, equals X and we either have the cash or we don't. And so I I worry that somebody may go way down the rabbit hole of getting hyper technical with technical skills, which is, which are awesome skills to have, but it's at the sacrifice of not getting the bigger picture business understanding. So I think if you can still anchor yourself around a business education and and just strategic initiatives you can do to help the business grow, then that technical skill set is a great complement to that. But I worry that that can like almost suck too many people in and they lose sight of the sight of the big picture. So I view that as a therefore a challenge and opportunity because if you have that context, you can leverage that as as a great as a great skill. But there's just there's just so much out there now that it almost, at least in my opinion, distracts from what we're all here to solve, which is how do we keep this business going? But the shiny new toys are fun. (laughs) They're they're very fun. (laughs) Uh, We all love them, but it, it is a good point, right? I mean, when you keep at its core what the business is about, as you mentioned, you really have that foundation, as you said, and then use technology to help grow and leverage versus Technology enables things to better, but you have to have a solid understanding. You have to have a process. You have to have the bedrock in place. And then you use technology to help enable and grow versus thinking technology is a solution. I think sometimes we think, well, once I get this technology and everything will be easier and I'll have more free time or it will solve this problem. And it's like, well, you know, processes and people usually solve the problem. Technology, yes, it can streamline it. It can make things easier. We've all seen great things where you're like, oh, I can press a button and get what? <laughs> right? right? You know, mm-hmm. versus the old days where you're sitting there copying and pasting or doing whatever you're doing to try to put it together. So I, I think you're exactly right. It's a great 
opportunity and it is a challenge. And we're always, as individuals, we always need that business acumen to fall back on because that's always going to be valuable, no matter what they may automate, is having those basics, really being able to understand it, understand your drivers and add strategic value is never going to go anywhere because that's not something computers do. Right. Right. They can they can be predictive and that sort of thing, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, don't get me wrong. And I'm not anti-technology either. There's, no, there's I know great, you're not. Yeah, there's <laughs> great back-end technology that gets us to a solution faster. But like you, you actually said it really well. It's not the solution. It just accelerates our decision-making forward, which is, which is the benefit. I was actually thinking we were going to put the label on this episode. Chris, anti-technology. No, 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 no. <laughs> Pen and paper only. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of a story, but we won't go there. We don't have enough time for that. But uh, so next question here, this is a question we like to ask everybody. You know, I'm a big believer of experience in particular failures help us grow. You know, you, failure leads to success is kind of the idea. I remember somebody teaching me that. So one question we like to ask is just for people to describe a time they had a failure in work, maybe an analysis that had gone wrong, an implementation that fell short, and what they learned from the experience. You know, what was maybe their takeaway from that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really thoughtful question. I have a lot, but the one, you know, <laughs> the one that sticks out in my mind is a, it's another private equity one. And it it's it actually sort of harkens back to the theme we've been touching on. But I mean, I had a I had a model built for a company we we're looking at, and they had a you know massive accounts receivable balance that I didn't even see. Like I knew it was in my file, but my brain didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Right? It was because of my model balanced. Right? Balance sheet balances model is good. And so <laughs> then I so then I bring it to the VP. And he looks, he points at the AR and he said, the accounts receivable, and he says, what's this? I said, well, I don't know, you know, but my model balances, right? And he and he, go, he just looks at me, he goes, that kind of thinking is going to get you fired. And I'm like, oh, wow, you know, reality, reality check right then and there. And so I took that to heart. You know, he was a little harsh with his like check-in, but then he came back to help me later. For me, I learned, okay, it's not just the model. I got to understand what this is, why it's here. I got to write down every question I can think of and start again, start thinking like a business owner, not thinking like a modeler. Right. And so I eventually figured out, well, these AR, they're long term contracts and blah, 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 blah. We didn't end up doing the deal, uh, you know, partly because of that. And so that one just, that one just always stuck with me because it was such sort of a like, big concrete statement to say like, you know, that's going to get you fired. You know, it's just such a wake up call. And that led me down this road of, all right, now I'm going to start thinking like an owner, thinking more strategically, thinking like an FP&A professional and not like a model builder. I can see why that stuck with you. That would have stuck with me as well. It's one of those (laughs) moments where you have, you know, a reality check, Mm -hmm. like, am I doing things right? And the answer is, Obviously not. If I just got told I might get fired, as hard as that is to to internalize, right? Because you think I'm doing a good job. It balances. I'm working hard. I'm working my butt off. There's probably a little bit of defensiveness like, oh, wow. But sounds like despite all that, you really internalized it and said, okay, how can I respond to this? And you took the response of how can I be better? How can I become a better FP&A professional? It was kind of one of those pivotal or key moments for you. Yeah, definitely a major and major inflection point. Yeah, that one's that one stands out the most. No, I could I could definitely see why that would have stood out to me too. So that makes a lot of sense. Appreciate you sharing that one. So next question here, this is another one we like to ask everybody. It's kind of a personal question. Have a little fun here. 
What's something unique about yourself that we're not going to find online or not going to find on your LinkedIn profile that you can share with the audience? Most people probably wouldn't guess that before I got into business and modeling, I was a fine arts and Spanish double major for a long time. So I don't have a business background. I don't really have a business brain or that kind of thing. I made a transition to business in college when I didn't really know what I wanted to do, frankly. And I figured in at a business and accounting background would help me just sort of land an, an initial job and learn what I wanted. But it's not, you know, it's not who I've been. Like I've heard some guests on your show, you know, by 10 years old, I was on the computer and I was doing like data analysis. Like that wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, you know I've, I've always been into more of like the the arts kind of stuff that's the that's my context but then as i got into more professional career i started building these the models and and the business sense so that all that all came later but that's not really who i am at my core got it so a cu- couple follow up questions to that first is <laughs> sure. you mentioned spanish so do you speak spanish are you fluent no, in spanish no barely or? it's been so long now it's <laughs> uh you know if i hear it i can sort of identify it decently but it's a lot of hard work, unfortunately, wasted. Sure. No, I, I understand. I took two years in high school and yeah, hola and como esta. <laughs> yeah. And that's probably about as far as I'm getting. So I get it. Yeah, I still got those. <laughs> yeah. I have a few others than that, but not many. Second, you mentioned art. So fun art, do you do drawing or pictures or anything you kind of still do today in that area is maybe just kind of, you know, a hobby yeah. or a to de-stress, whatever it might be. I'll do uh, every now and again, so it's, you know, few and far between these days, but every now and again, <laughs> I will do a, uh, like a pencil drawing of something, you know, that was usually what I was, was best at. And, uh, I'll do it of like family members or if somebody wants like a picture of their house as a gift or something, or, uh, you know, a picture of the dog, something like that. It's, uh, I don't, I don't do it nearly as much as I wish I did, but it's, uh, every, every now and again, I'll, I'll, I'll take out the stuff and, and draw something. Well, good. No, that that sounds like that's a fun opportunity when you have time. I know with young kids at home, I know you have a few there. It can be hard to find much free time. Yeah, so. it's quite quite limited. <laughs> yeah. You know. No, you and I have talked. I know how that is. So here's the next question for you. And this is one that you probably thought about a little bit because I know you got this ahead of time. It's my favorite question to ask because I love to see the different answers people give is what is your ex- favorite Excel formula, function, feature? And why? Could be any of those. I think it is the index match combo. Probably my all-time favorite. Uh, I know everybody's all about XLOOKUP these days. <laughs> I've, you know, I've dabbled, but I'm still an index match purist. I just, I don't know the the, the ability to get multiple dimensions of a lookup from anywhere, with not not confined by ranges, to me is is super helpful. So that one's probably my all-time favorite. I'll use it for bringing in balance sheet balances or that kind of thing. That's I think that's got to be number one. Yeah, that's definitely one we hear a lot. And I know a lot of people love Index Match. It's a great, great formula. So I can appreciate that. What one. is yours? You know what? I don't know if I have <laughs> one. What I'm really enjoying right now, and I don't know if you've seen them yet, I'm just starting to work on a course, is Excel finally released out of beta in the last about month, six weeks. 14 new formulas. There's 11 of them that are dynamic arrays where you can basically stack tables together in one formula. Vertically, horizontally, you can drop things from the data. So as a total, you could drop it. You could stack it all together and say, drop the totals, drop the first and last columns. So there are a lot of shaping of dynamic arrays. And right now, that's probably my favorite thing to play with. Now, as far as really formula or function, Power Query 
I have to say that one because it really pretty much got me promoted at two jobs ago. Mm-hmm. And it it saved my bacon because the place was a total mess and I had to fix all <laughs> the data and I could have never done it without Power Query. So that's my favorite thing within Excel. But right now I'm really having fun with the new the new shaping formulas, but that's more just toying around with them at the moment, just because they're kind of cool to see. Mm-hmm. So yeah, most people aren't surprised when I say Power Query. <laughs> yeah, I, I was not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyone who's followed me on LinkedIn knows I preach that one from time to time. So last question here, and then we'll let you go. I know we're coming up to the top of our time. So if someone was starting a career today in FP&A, you know, just finished college, they want to work in FP&A, what would be the advice you would offer them? I feel like, again, it's the start with some of those technical skills to build a personal budget, again, just gives you an FP&A education, even though it may not seem like it or you might not realize it. So I, th- I think that's a great place to just start in terms of those core skills. And then I think it comes back to that three-statement understanding as well. How do you translate your technical skills into how a business works? Because a valuable FP&A professional is going to be able to go into the room and say, here's where the business is at today, and here's what I think we should consider for the future uh, to keep the business going. I mean, that's that's really the bottom line of what you're trying to solve for in the, in the FP&A role. So I think if you can hone those initial technical skills. Again, just modeling your own life is a very helpful way to do it. And then understand the primary business levers, especially in the three-statement setting. You, you really have a nice, nice foundation for if you're going in for an internship or interview or whatever, to be able to talk thoughtfully about really the end goal of an FP&A career. I appreciate that advice. And it's the first time we've had uh, the advice put that way. And I really think there's some solid advice there and just that importance of budgeting and understanding the three statements and how to think about it in your own life is a lot of value. So, well, Chris, I want to thank you for being on the show. I've really enjoyed your time. It's been a great having you here. And just before we sign off, I'll let you an opportunity to you know say goodbye, let people know where they can find you. But I just want to remind people first earmark. If you want CPE credit for this audio podcast, you can go there and answer some questions and get that. And second, if you've enjoyed the podcast, you enjoy listening to FPNA today, please take time to give us a rating on your podcast platform that you're listening to, whether that's Spotify, Apple, whatever it may be. So uh, Chris, thanks again for being on the show. If people want to follow you, learn more about you, where could they go to do that? I'm on LinkedIn pretty much all the time. And I always try to connect with people there and um, you know, respond to people when I can and stuff. So anybody wants to learn more, that's where to find me. All right. Well, thank you, Chris. Really appreciate having you on the show and you have a great evening. Yeah, no, thanks so much, Paul. Really appreciate being on. Thank you.